Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for being an awesome God. Uh, that you are with us, Father, through the valley of the shadow of death, and you bring us through to life, and that you give us strength. That you, Father, are the true reason for what we celebrate, what we live, and what we do. I pray, Father, that our lives would have meaning, that we would live our lives with a sense of seriousness and a sense of purpose. I pray, Father, that your Spirit would be here today to give us a, a sense of, of, of growing in you, that your Spirit would be here to open our eyes, Father, that we would be strong and committed towards the things that we know to be true. Father, strengthen us, Father. Help us to be the men and the women that you'd have us to be to, to take on a an ugly generation, a crooked and perverse generation that's in front of us, Father. And we pray that we could be straight and that we would be uh, walking the narrow path, Father, that you've given us. We thank you, Father, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we just finished Luke chapter 1 the last couple weeks, we've been seeing that the Spirit of God's been kind of hovering over, working onto a, a, a society, a place in time, when Jesus was to be born, that was really very dead, very devoid of the Spirit of God. We saw Zacharias, one of the men in there that was supposed to be a priest in there lighting the candles. He sees Gabriel, and Gabriel comes in there and almost gives this guy, Zacharias, a heart attack. Oh my gosh, what's an angel doing in the temple? Oh, I can't believe God's actually here. And he had a negative response to some of the promises of God. And what we're really looking at is the process, we said, the process of a promise. God spoke promises for generations. Ever since there was dirt, ever since there was Adam and Eve, God gave a promise of a Messiah. Those promises can sometimes seem distant, sometimes far away. And when they come to fruition, when they start to happen, we, we watch in amazement. We says, wow, I can't believe this is really happening. And, and what we need to know that sometimes in our lives, and we talked about that last week, about when we're in the bulb phase, we said, when we're buried, we're in the ground, and nothing seems to be happening like a, a bulb that you would plant in the fall and wait till the spring for it to bloom. And so many times that's us in our lives. But God's promises are faithful and true. God wants to make a promise to you and He wants to start to reveal things in your life and He wants to start to, and I like this, He wants to hold our hand and walk us through life. He wants to be there with you and to guide you and to take care of you. And, and Christianity is not just a, a sterile contract that you make in order to go to heaven someday. Christianity is walking with the creator of the universe as your friend. He's there to be with you and to guide you. And, and God, and I love this, if we look at Luke chapter 2 today, you're seeing that God is speaking clearly to Mary. And we've got to put ourselves in Mary's shoes and see that she was you know, overwhelmed. She was a young gal. She's now being told that she's going to have the Messiah as a child. And we're seeing that she wanted to verify some things in her life. She heard that Aunt you know, Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist to be, she went running over there. And now she's, she's looking and it's important that we see that chapter 2 is just more uh, affirmation, more confirmation of the things that God said. But let's go through the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Luke. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, head honcho of all of the Roman Empire, 
that all the world, or at least the known world to him, should be registered. And this census first took place while uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. So also went to be registered. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So Luke is telling us that there was a census that was to be taken. Now, I don't think that this had to be a mass exodus of people of reshuffling and some people wondering how thorough this was. But every king, whenever he wanted to do what kings do best, they collect taxes. In order to tax the people, you've got to know how many people you have. And so you'd count. You'd always want a head count. You want to say, how big is my empire? And so he's saying, everyone kind of go home or at least stay home and so we can get a fair head count. And I suppose for some people, they'd want to say, well, that's, you know, so that they could be taxed appropriately back then. Or even more importantly, if they were Quirinius or whoever this guy was, Assyria, he's saying, hey, if you don't live here, get out of here. And he's saying, we don't want to be counted and taxed for so many people when we don't have that many people. So he's merely saying, hey, it's time to go home, and that's what's happening. And so Mary the, and Joseph are going to go home to Bethlehem, their hometown. And we know the story that she's pregnant. We knew that there was some things there where she couldn't believe that she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit without knowing a man, the virgin birth. And she's now going to go back to Bethlehem and have to face her family. It says, though, for Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So King David's hometown was Bethlehem. He's a descendant of King David, and he's got to go back to Bethlehem, about five miles outside of Jerusalem, if you would, and a close little small suburb of Jerusalem. And it says, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. So they're still engaged. That's what betrothed would be. And I, for the life of me, don't know why they didn't have a quick, you know, Vegas wedding real quick when you found out she was pregnant. But obviously, there's still three months have transpired because we know that she spent three months with Elizabeth. She knows that she's pregnant and she's still waiting for the proper time. And she's not going to rush anything, even though she's going to be with child. And it says, verse 6, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered child is now on. Now it's the ninth month, if you would. So she probably stayed there for quite some time, and she brought forth forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And gee, that almost sounds so cliche-ish, but you're looking at this. We would, I was trying to tell Chris to sing a couple Christmas songs, you know. And uh, he didn't go for it, but uh, we, 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 we almost get that Christmas story and you almost start to, you know, phase into the mantra where you black out your thinking and you just go straight into the Christmas story. And you got to look at this a little bit deeper and realize there's a lot of things that are going on here in Mary's life. Given a promise, and then as she's given a promise, she's now asked she's going back home. And as she has no room for her in the inn, the the question that always begs my mind is, why is she staying at a hotel? She should be, if she even wanted to go to the hotel, she's now stuck in the manger because the hotel was full. Now, 
I don't know why if you have a woman, let's say she's somewhere between three and nine months pregnant, wherever the situation is in the story, why she wouldn't be with mom and dad. You're going home. Obviously, all of her relatives are from there. All of her husband's, fiancé's family is from there. They're going home. And nobody at home wants them. Or they don't want to see any of their family. Something's changed. Obviously, she has a child, and she doesn't know how to explain it, and she's not welcomed at home. And so she's going there. She, you'd figure at least, you know, you could sleep on mom and dad's floor. What kind of parent, right, would kick out their daughter pregnant and have her sleeping in the manger? And so there must have been some feathers ruffled, if you would, where uh, uh, they rejected her and said, oh, yeah, a virgin birth, right. You're stuck outside. Or she said, my parents will never believe it. They'll never buy it. Or even more importantly, I think something's changed in them where they're saying home is no longer home. Something's changed in me, Mary could say. I know that when I left home, I was 18, joined the Marine Corps, off to boot camp I go. Off to, you know, avionics school, electronic training I went. And to come back home after leaving home, you realize there's something different. You're, I'm a Marine now. I'm a, my own man. I'm not going to be the baby of the family. I'm not going to be mama's boy anymore. My parents don't tell me what to do. And there's uh, that feeling of when you go home. I don't know when you run off to college or when you leave and you come back. And there's, there's a feeling that something's changed. I can remember many years after that when I got out of the Marine Corps, even though there was another change that happened in my life when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And as I was living in California and I was now born again, God started to do a lot of changes in my life. And I can remember going back to my family and trying to explain to them the changes that had happened in my life. It didn't go over too well. And whether you like it or not, there was a change in my heart, and home was no longer home to me. I didn't feel welcome there. I didn't feel desired there. I didn't feel like I wanted to do anything there. There was something different that was going on. And I think for Mary, whatever it was, something was changing. It's amazing she could at least feel comfortable with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was one of her relatives that was up in the hill country of Judea, it said. And when she was up in the hill country, uh, Elizabeth took her in and everything was fine and she was welcomed, but her own mother and father wouldn't take it. Interesting that Elizabeth could understand, could relate to what she was going through, but maybe the rest of her family couldn't. And I suppose the story would be that sometimes that when we're Christians, when you ask Christ to come into your life, there's a change in your life. You no longer feel familiar family with what should be family, but you start to redesign, redirect your life into such a pattern that those that have a similar experience of having something born in them become somebody you can identify with more than your own family. And Elizabeth is feeling that. She's, she, I mean, sorry, Mary's feeling that. They're saying, I, I'd rather go out and sleep in the barn and have my kid than deal with this or whichever which way the tensions were coming. But Mary's going through that. And I want to tell us as a congregation that sometimes when you receive the promises of God and you stand up for the promises of God, changes in your life start to take place. 
what seems to be so familiar is no longer familiar. You feel awkward being around people. There's a sense of, I'd rather sleep out in the barn than go into that old household again with everybody yelling and screaming and all the arguments and all the things that are there. We say, no, thank you. Home's lost its luster. And Mary was sensing that. And with that, God now, as there's a sense of leaving the comfort zone of where she was, God's going to start to draw her into a different direction. Watch the chain of events. There's some, some familiar stories, but just read them. He says, verse 8, he says, Now there was the, in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. There's going to be a sign, something for you to look at, something for you to analyze, and that will be, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And you say, well, what's the miracle in that? Doesn't children being born all day long? Well, I think the rest of the story kind of puts it in perspective where, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. It's all going, all the trumpets are blowing. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. So here you would, you'd see, here's a bunch of guys sitting alone on a hill. It's cold and dark and miserable, like we said was the state of the world. And in interrupts the scene, an angelic host of heaven. The bright lights, the shining, the screaming. And notice what it says, there's a sign. Something's going on in the world. Something, it's not just an ordinary thing. You could look at this as just an ordinary everyday event. But something special is going on. Don't miss the obvious in front of you. There is something different about this child. So this is a great story for the men that were there, the shepherds, and they're going to sit down and say, wow, this is cool. All of a sudden, it's not just a child, but man, did you see the light show that was on? Did you hear the voices? Did you see the things that was going on? So it was, verse 15, that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, so they all go back up into heaven, that the shepherds are standing there and they say to one another, hey, let us now go to Bethlehem and see. we got to go check this out. Find out if this wasn't just some hallucination. These things that have come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. They ran as fast as they could and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. So in come these shepherds. They're all excited. They're going, man, you know, some angel just told me to be here. You know, the whole heavenly host, the things were, you know, the light show and everything. Now, all this wasn't for the shepherds, and all this wasn't to sit down and tell the community that something was going on. This was for Mary. 
This was to say, Mary, this child is different. And she needed, she needed someone to come up to her and say, something special is happening. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known, verse 17 again, the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it, they what? They marveled. They, they were awestruck. They're going, wow, at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And I like this verse, verse 19, but Mary kept them. And in the New American Standard, it says that she treasured them on all these things and she pondered them in her heart. She's looking at this whole thing and she says, I got a baby. And I think every mother, when she has a child, would say, my baby's special. No, 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 my baby's special. This, this is special. My kid's different. And, and I'm sure she's saying, well, my kid's different, you know, and I knew that, you know, well, I was born of a virgin and it's got to be the son of God. But yet she's still pondering. She's still wondering. She's still not convinced. She's still sitting down there digesting this whole process. And God understands that and sends an angel and says, hey, these things are there. So the shepherds return, glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So she's pondering these things. They're moving on. And so all of a sudden, as she's a, 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 a woman of God, she has this child. She does what she's supposed to do now. She's going to move on into the temple. And now you're going to see this scene, and it's very important. He says, 21, and, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Gabriel came down and said, you're going to have a child, you're going to name him Jesus, or Joshua, which means God with us. And he says, now when the days of her, her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, so she was supposed to wait to be pure, you couldn't go into after just having a baby, which was a bloody mess and she'd be unclean for the temple, you've got to wait so many days. For a boy, if it was a boy that was born, you could wait seven days. If it was a baby girl, you'd have to wait two weeks and say, it takes a little longer for you to clean up after that. I don't know why, that was the Jewish law. And it says, uh, so she goes, I got a baby boy, and as there's a baby boy, she's going to now say, it's time for me to make my sacrifice. So she's walking into the temple, she's got to have her baby baptism, dedication, whatever it is, the time to be circumcised by a priest. And he says, now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they're going to say, Lord, here's your child back. And it says, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb, the firstborn, shall be called holy to the Lord. And that was ever since the Passover, Egypt, when God took the firstborn of all the Egyptians. God says, every firstborn of the Jews belongs to God. They were supposed to be set aside. And he says, and, uh, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So as what was supposed to happen is you're supposed to say, God, the first child is yours. And so I want to take this child, I'm going to dedicate it to you. And then what you would say is to say, well, this child should be raised up to be a priest, should be raised up to be the leader, uh, uh, a man of God. And, but you say, well, God, I need the guy, the son of mine to help me till the field and to be a worker and to take care of the family so you could buy back the child. And what you do to buy back, pay back, redeem the child is you'd offer a sacrifice. 
Now, if you read uh, Leviticus in, in Leviticus 15 and uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Leviticus 12, 6 through 8 and Leviticus 5, 7 through 11, you're seeing that there were sacrifices that were supposed to be made. What was supposed to be there was not supposed to be two turtle doves. What you should do if you were prosperous enough is you should offer a lamb and a turtle dove. You take the lamb for a sin offering, you burn it up on the altar, and then the turtle dove was another blood offering or something. But the object would be to say, well, then God says, and there's a provision in the law that says, well, if you're poor, if you're poor, and we're seeing that Mary was poor, then you can just take two turtle doves and sacrifice them and you could get your kid back. And what you're doing is you're making a cleansing, a purification for the sin of your life, for your uncleanliness, and you're able to say, hey, I, I, God gave me something and I want to be able to redeem him, pay him back to say thank you for the things that have happened. And it's interesting in Leviticus chapter 5, it says, well, now if you're too poor to even buy two turtle doves, which should cost you a couple bucks, you'd think, down at the marketplace. If you're too poor for that and you can't even afford it, what you could do is you could take a handful of fine flour and offer that up to the Lord. So I suppose anybody, if you could make a, enough to buy a biscuit, you could buy a handful of flour, you could throw it onto the altar, and then that would be burned. And you could say, well, anybody can afford a biscuit if I can give anything to the Lord. And what should happen is you're saying, hey, I need to give something back for what God has given me. And, and Mary's making that statement. That says you a lot about Mary. Some, some people, and, and I love Mary, she's blessed of all women. Uh, some people want to exonerate Mary and say that Mary was perfect. That doesn't fit into the scenario at all. Mary was somebody because she had a child that was perfect, therefore she must have been perfect, so let's worship Mary. And that's not the statement that needs to be made. Here's Mary, she's saying, especially last week we said, hey, God's shown mercy to a poor child like me. And what she's saying is she says, I need to make a sacrifice to God. And, he, and she's walking into the temple and she's trying to say, I, I'm, I'm not dirt poor to throw some flour on there and I'm not rich enough to own a lamb, but I'm middle class enough <laughs> to say, hey, uh, here's two turtle doves. I want to give God what's due because she's recognizing that God's working. And so I, I like this. It says, uh, uh, so she's making a sacrifice uh, of the two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which Tom Ford always makes fun of my dove behind me and calls it a pigeon and says, oh, why do you have a pigeon in your church? <laughs> There's other people who go, oh, you're the pastor of that church over there with that bird up there, the pigeon up there. And you go, it's not a pigeon, it's a dove. <laughs> but I guess supposedly, technically, a dove and a pigeon are one of the same things. And... Uh, so you could be a turtle dove. We like to think of it as a dove, but you can call it a pigeon if you like. But you won't be on my good side. <laughs> right, Tom? <laughs> no. And behold, verse 25. So here she is. She's going in to make this sacrifice. And behold, all of a sudden as she's walking in, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We don't know anything about this guy. And this man was just and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon this guy. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, check this out, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this guy, he's lived his whole life, and we're supposing him to be an old man, and something, you know, the Holy Spirit told him, it says, you're, you're not going to die till you see the Messiah. You ever have people say that? And they say, oh, I feel like we're the last generation. 
my mother always thought that, you know, she would be the last generation and she wouldn't see death, but the rapture was going to happen. And there's people that have that impression. And, uh, and here's this guy, you know, Simeon, and he was like, you know, the Lord told me as I've been hanging out in the temple that before I die, I'm going to see the Messiah, that I'm going to see the Lord's Christ. That would be Christ. That's a, you know, Greek term for the word Messiah. He says, verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, so here's Mary and Joseph whistling their way in, got their little doves underneath their arm, and all of a sudden this guy Simeon jumps into him. And he says, uh, and when the parents brought in the child to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. So this guy Simeon comes in and says, hey, check out that kid. That's it. So he grabs the kid out of Mary and Joseph's arm, picks him up in his arms, and he says, Lord, and now he starts this prayer. He grabs the child out of his arms and says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. So what is he saying? Okay, I've seen it. This child's the Messiah. It's okay for me to die now. It's all right. I can die. And he says, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel. So Joseph and Mary are sitting there going, hey, look, give us our kid back. You know what I mean? And Mary and Joseph marveled. They're marveling at, the, uh, at which were spoken of them. And you go, what a confirmation. This old guy's hanging out at the temple. They're here to dedicate it. They don't know this guy from Adam. And he grabs a child and says, this is it. God said I couldn't die. I wouldn't die until I see the Messiah. Now I've seen him. And so Simeon takes it and looks right at the parents. He says, verse 34, And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, you got a special kid. This child is destined. He's, he's destiny's child. There's something different about this child. He says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign... Uh, a sign which will be spoken against. And he goes, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, about this child. So he's looking right at the parents and he goes, this has got to even affect you. That the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So here this guy is, he's sitting here, he's waiting, he sees it, and he says, this child is special, and this child is going to be one that the thoughts of men's hearts is going to be revealed. This is what's going to happen as you understand the Messiah. And, and really, how you and I respond to Jesus as Lord, or reject Jesus as Lord, it really does determine what's in our heart. If I could explain to you the whole gospel scenario and say Jesus Christ was the Son of God, He was innocent, He fed the poor, he, he healed the lepers, and He was just a nice guy going about doing everything that we would love to see done. And you know what? They took Him, they strung Him up, they beat Him, and they spit on Him. And this was the Son of God who was perfect and God's love was being revealed and yet man rejected Him and was filled with hatred. And your heart should respond and say, oh, that's a terrible story. That breaks my heart to see pure love, innocence being destroyed by wicked men. Or if you respond and say, so what? Everyone dies. So what? You know, the guy it was just some other guy that died. Millions of people die all the time. Whoop-de-doo. Well, that tells you a lot about your heart. 
If your heart's one that is right for God, it's going to be sensitive, caring, and compassionate. And if your heart really could just, who cares about the world, you're cold-hearted and bitter. There's something wrong with your heart. You've got a heart of rock. And, and what, what happens, and what Simeon is saying, this child and what happens to this child is what's going to be what judges and shows people what's in their heart. And, and we look at these things, and our hearts should be broken as believers. But it's a powerful word. This is something that's given to Mary, because what's going on in Mary's heart was that she was confused over the promises of God, and you're seeing a second sign where the shepherds come running in and said, dude, this child's special. Now all of a sudden she's walking in the temple, and this old guy comes up and says, God told me I couldn't die until I see the Messiah. That's the Messiah. Now Mary's going to look at this and she's going to go, wow, there's something big going on here. God wants to do a work in, in Mary's heart and says, something big's going on here. So if that's not enough, then all of a sudden, verse 36, he says, Now there was one, this lady Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. This old lady who did not depart from the temple. She was part of the furniture there. But she served God with fasting and prayers night and day. So she, here's now we're seeing this other lady, Anna. Okay, so she got married. Let's say, let's just say she was married when she was 15. She was married for seven years, which makes her 22. And now she's got 84 years of being a widow. Now, I don't know if she was, it's hard to say at 84 she was a widow for all of her life, or she's got 84 years of widowhood if she's 84 years of age, or if she's about 100 and something years of age. She's old. She's been there for forever, and for 84 years of widowhood, she didn't have a husband, she didn't have any hobbies, she didn't have any kids. All she does is she hangs out in the temple day and night, praying and fasting. So this lady says, look, I don't have a family, I don't have nothing, my husband died. All I'm doing is solely devoted to God. She didn't depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in, listen to that, says that instant... What instant? I suppose the instant of, of Simeon over here talking to her. He says, that instant she gave thanks to the Lord and she spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So she's going, whoa, all of a sudden this other. So you got this old guy. She's in there trying to give a baby dedication. The old guy comes up and says, that's the Messiah. And all of a sudden, Hey, Anna, the, the lady who's part of the furniture just sits there, minds her own business. Nobody knows what's going on. She's just the old lady over there that's a prophetess. And she comes up, doesn't know, you know, Mary and Joseph from Adam, if you would. And she's saying, that child's the redemption. That's the one we're looking for. That's pretty powerful. He says, so when they had performed all these things, verse 39, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Mary's walking away now with confirmation of what she believes. It's being shown over time that this is something substantial. And I like this. 
It's something outside of what was going on in Mary's heart. You got the shepherds, you got Simeon, you got Anna. These were all things that Mary had no control over. They were all things that were outside of her that come barging into her life and wants to come to Mary to say, Mary, something special is here. God's promises are real and God is working over time to show Mary that these promises are true. And I like that. And it's even coming from elders. And I like that. I, I think one thing I've learned over the last few years is that elders are older people. Uh, it's kind of hard to trust in elders that are young. I don't know if you've ever had the little missionaries come to your door with the Mormon missionaries. And they got their little badge on and they're all the 17, 18 years old, kicked out of Utah. And they come running over to your door and they're going to tell you all about Jesus. And they got that badge on. It says, Elder. And you go, elder, what are you doing, 20? And you go, now to me, and I read the Bible, it says you're an elder. That means you're able to teach. You should be able to go through all these things. Now, do you know what's going on? You sit down and start to talk to them, and they go, oh, I don't know what the answers are. i got to go ask someone else. Well, an elder is somebody that you go to to go ask. An elder is the type of person that says, I don't know what I'm doing. Now I need an answer. And here you're seeing older, wiser people that are gentle, with no malicious intent of their own to come up with any reason for why they should lie, cheat, or deceive. These are people that says, look, I'm not in it for nothing. That's what an elder is. That's where older people are there. They're saying, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And I know, and I'm telling you something right now. I'm not trying to, you know, get the inside track on who Jesus is. This is an infant, and this child's different. And that's a reconfirming, solidifying solid thing where they're going wow things are happening and so you see the the next story and it's the same uh, 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 scenario it says his parents then went to Jerusalem every year verse 41 at the feast of the Passover and when he was 12 years old so now Jesus is older little boy they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast you're supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year at least once a year these guys show up and he says, and when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, that sounds a little absurd in one sense, but when you got four kids like I do, and we all go someplace with three or four different families, it's pretty easy to say, well, I think, you know, my boy Timmy, who's 11, and, you know, he's going to go get a ride home with the Joneses. He's going to get a ride home with the Millers or something. And then when you get home, you kind of say, where, where, how, where's Timmy? Well, you know, he got a ride home with so-and-so. And that's what happened. They'd all go from, you know, uh, from Nazareth. They'd all go down to Jerusalem in big caravans. And, you know, they'd all say, well, the kids are all riding around, walking someplace. And you get home and you say, well, where's my kid? And you go, oh, oh, I thought he was with the Joneses over here, <laughs> or the, I don't know, whatever. And, and he goes, you know, and they're going, no, no, no. And now they're starting to say, well, he, he didn't come home. And so now they're saying, uh-oh, you know, we're the bad parents. We lost our kid. Where did Jesus go? Uh-oh, I lost the Messiah. <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> How do you think that would make you feel as a parent, you know? <laughs> So they're sitting down, there's the panic starting to come over them, and, uh, and they didn't know what was going on, but supposing that he'd been in the company that went with somebody else, uh, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Hey, did you bring Jesus home? No. Did you bring Jesus home? No. 
He says, verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. You could just find them seething and angry, saying, what are you doing? Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple. They've been looking for this guy for three days, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answer. So Jesus was probably pretty smart for his age. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. I don't think amazed was quite the look on his mother's face when uh, she said, and his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? What are you, nuts? He goes, look, your father and I, you put, look at all the gray hair on his head, have sought you anxiously. You're killing us, kid. What are you doing here? They're asking him a question. Why did you do this to us? You know, and I, could, I can relate as a parent when you're like, what are you doing here? And he turns around and he said to them, why do you seek me? Uh, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand. They were a little upset. And uh, the statement but which uh, he spoke to them. And he went down and he, uh, with them and he came to Nazareth and was subject to them. So he's still a child, has to deal with parents, and he has to be subject to his parents as a good child. But his mother, listen to this, kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and men. So if you would, you're seeing some things start to happen where Jesus is starting to grow. And that's a strange concept that we have to understand that as Jesus, that we think of him as the Son of God, he was born perfect. And you know, for him to grow and to mature as a man, that, that, that doesn't quite jive with sometimes our view. We think of Jesus as always the perfect one and you know, he must have been a straight-A student and blah, 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 blah. It's tough to, to understand that. But Jesus is fully God. And we believe that as a church, that he's 100% God in flesh. And yet we also see that Jesus is 100% man. He's, he's someone that had to grow. He's someone that had to sweat. He had someone that had to eat. He's someone that went through human behaviors and functions like all the rest of us. That's what makes it so beautiful is that he could identify with us. And he had to go through the growing process. And so if you would, there's changes that are starting to take place. There are things which are happening here. And even though, and I, I find it interesting that uh, Mary didn't understand where Jesus would be or should be. Jesus was shocked when he says, didn't you know that I would be right here in my father's temple? You know, of course I'm going to be here. I, I, I don't have, you know, my home, my family isn't with you, Mary. You're just raising me, if you would. I have to be subject to you to be a child. But there's much more going on. There's more to this, and what's amazing is a, 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 an insight into Mary's heart. She didn't understand. So, looking at the picture of Mary, you're seeing, here's Mary who says, who says I've got shepherds, I've got Anna, I've got Simeon, all coming to me and saying this child is, is special. And you would think you'd say, well, duh, Mary, don't you get it that this child is special? And even Jesus is saying, I'm special, I'm different. And Mary still doesn't get it. And what happens in our life, the truth of the matter is, is God does wonderful works in our life. God gives you and I promises, and there's still the duh, don't we get it? I'm amazed at how, 
I can lack so much faith in my life when God has clearly spoken to me, shown things to me, and I still wonder and marvel at them. And I think God would turn around and say, Dave, don't you get it? How blind can you be? And what happens in our life, in the process of a promise, promises have a tendency to go through three phases. There's times in our life when we start off to be very curious about the things of God. We hear the things of God, and it's a curiosity to us to say, well, I'm lost, I'm confused, I'm bitter in my life, but there are things I, I, I need. In this Christianity, I got, I got my friend Johnny over here. He gave his life to the Lord, and, and, and he changed his life. And we start off the process with, I wonder what that, that, there, there, that there is there for me. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there's something that, that I should check out in Christianity. And for me, that's the way it was. I saw a couple believers and I said, man, they got happy marriages. They got things going on. They seem to be content in their life. What is it about them? That's what lures us in. And if you notice when, when Mary was there out in the field, if you would, the angel Gabriel comes down and, and comes into the house, if you would, and, and speaks to Mary, and, and the angel comes in and says, Behold, blessed one. He goes, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. He goes, But when she saw him, we said she was troubled at his saying and considered at what meaning of greeting this was. Remember, we talked about that, and Mary was saying, what are you trying to do, sell me a vacuum? You know, who are you? What are you doing? This sense of, of curiosity comes in, and, and, and Mary's like, what, are you, what do you mean I'm blessed? What do you mean what's happening? What do you mean I'm going to bear a child? And you could see that there was a sense of curiosity. But what happens, though, is what God wants to do is take us from the place of curiosity and bring us into the place of, of, that, that we're convinced that there's a level of conviction in our life, that we know that we know, and it's no longer a fanciful thing. And God does that. He brings us to a place that we can be convinced in these things by showing us signs, verifying His Word, and speaking to you and I at a level that we take one piece after another piece after another piece, and we marvel, we meditate, we treasure these things that the Lord has in our hearts until finally we come to a place that we're committed. And when you're a committed believer in the Lord, when you're committed, you can be steadfast in the Lord. And what God's plan is, is to have, when you are a committed Christian, you should be able to say, Lord, you can have every single thing come against me, but I'm going to stand for you. Everyone can hate me. They can beat me. They can torture me. They can take away my house. They can have every single thing go wrong. And I am standing on the rock of Christ, and I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is true, even though every single thing around me is failing. I don't need a sign. I don't need anything around there. I know what the truth is because I'm committed. God wants to bring every single one of us here into a place where we are committed for Him, that we would be willing to go against the signs that are in front of us. And God does that by bringing us through the phase of being convinced. He wants to change us. He wants to mold us. He wants to show us things in our life. And He's saying, hey, you go from the curious to the convinced to the committed. You need to start making changes in your life. God wants to show you the process of a promise. He speaks to you. says, you'll have everlasting life if you believe in my son Jesus. 
that's interesting. He starts to speak to you. He says, no, I'm very real. I want to give you a sign. I want to show you some things. I want to have some people come up to you as you're just walking down the marketplace and say, there's something going on. I see, you know, people walk up to you and says, I see the Holy Spirit in you. You do? Yeah, there's something different about you. Really? And if you, if you can stop and do an inventory of your life a little bit, you'll see that God has spoken to you many times. And we brush it off, we, you know, dust it off, we, eh, whatever, you know, that doesn't mean much. And then when we're finally confronted with something, a situation, we're still anxious, we still don't understand. And God's like, I still want to bring you to that place where you understand what's going on. I want to bring you to that place that, that you can grow and mature. And that's what has to happen in our life. That's what growing and maturing is, is that Jesus, who was the Son of God, I guess, as he had to grow up, he's waiting for the flesh to catch up to where he is, God is. And in our life, there's a promise. God says, this is the promise. And you know what? There is a time, a phase in our life that we have to catch up, catch up to the promise that's there. And you find people that are old and wise, they turn around and says, this is the truth that I know. Very simple, very solid. But now I can say, I know that I know. God wants to do a strong work in us, and he wants us to grow to be committed. Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We not, well, that's not the way we're supposed to be, says Paul. And he says, uh, he says, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, the world pushes and shoves us every which way. And we as, are not to be children that's tossed to and fro by the world trying to trick us. He says, but speaking the truth in love, Paul says that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so if you would, you're looking at this scenario and you're seeing, hey, you know what? We as Christians, you've got to grow. You've got to wait for your flesh to catch up to knowing that God is your head. God is in control and he is able to take care of you. That's what God wants. That you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by the things of the world. You wouldn't be pushed and shoved because things don't go your way. You're going to be committed. You're going to grow. You're going to be mature. You're going to be strong in the things of the Lord. God wants to nurse you along to a place that you can finally start to understand the things that God has for you, and that's what's in Christ Jesus, to know. He wants you to be strong. And, and sometimes as we grow into the Lord, we can be just like Mary and ask the question, Jesus, why are you doing this to us? What are you doing? Don't you know that your Father and I have sought you anxiously? Sometimes God wants to stretch us out. Sometimes God wants to sit down there and to work in his life and to say, hey, wait a second. Hey, wait a second, Jesus, you're doing this wonderful thing out here and you're causing me to stretch and to grow and we feel the anxiety. What are you doing, Jesus, in my life? What are you doing to me? Here's Mary. She's going, hey, 
You're pushing me. And that's, that's the part of going from being curious to going from being convinced to being committed is that you have to be stretched. And in that stretching process, which none of us like, we have a tendency to turn around and question God and say, God, what are you doing? And when you can walk with the Lord till you get past that point in your life, when God can show you, nurse you along, and bring you to a point in your life where you can say, God, I know that I know that I know because I've had questions. I was just curious. And now I see that your promises are true and I can be raised up, developed up in you, God, so that I can be committed so that now that I know that I know that I know, I'm no longer trusting in a sign. I'm no longer trusting in whether or not, you know, an angel says something or this says something. I know your promises are true and I'm trusting in you. You can become a much more advanced, mature, steadfast Christian that can be more dependable for us to be used of the Lord. So listen to this. There are times in your life where God sees your weakness and he understands your weaknesses. God will, God will pamper you in your weaknesses at times. The eventual goal of Christianity is to put the pampers away and not having to have everything but where you can be steadfast and immovable and that is exactly what God is going to do through Mary and if you know the scene in John chapter 2 when Jesus finally comes of age and now he goes to the wedding at Cana and as he's at the wedding of Cana he's, she's going to say hey Jesus you know we need to bring the wine here and he's there making the wine and she turns around and says you do what my son says she's committed she says something's going on here he's telling you to do something you be obedient to the voice of Jesus and mother now is willing to turn around and say my son is in control here that's the eventual goal for where things need to be God wants to work through it God wants to develop you. And if you, if you are praying and saying at that stage in your life where you're curious, you say, Lord, I need help. Understanding you and me trusting you just isn't happening right now. You need to speak to me and show me a few things. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if your prayer is sincere, God will come and speak to you. And he'll show you things that only you know. And he'll say, I'm right here. I'm with you. And I want you to know that I care about you. You need to make that prayer. You need to pray to the Lord. Maybe your first prayer needs to say, Lord, I don't feel like praying. Lord, my first prayer is help me to pray. And as you begin to ask the Lord, I believe if God's the creator, the creator of the universe, and that God loves us and cares for us, and he made me with a purpose, that if I actually ask God and says, God, are you there? My God will respond. And he will say, I'm here. If he can't do that, he's useless. And God just doesn't raise us up into a vacuum so that we, we have no idea what's going on. And the message that's being brought about here is that God speaks to Mary and says, Mary, I understand I'm asking a lot of you, but I want to give you the shepherds. I want to give you Anna. I want to give you Simeon. I want to show you that Jesus is somebody that's able to stand up. And I want you to understand that you're going to be stretched and you can go through that. But the goal 
is that you don't need those things. The goal is that we don't have to have our hands held. And sometimes Lord puts us in a place where you say, Lord, I'm trusting in you because I want to be committed. I want to stand on the rock against the storms and the tides of this world and know that you can deliver me. And that's what God wants to do in your life. And he's raising us. He's causing us to go from curious to convinced to committed. And he wants you and I to be committed to him. And if you're not in that place where you are committed to Christ, you need to seek after and say, Lord, show me more. There's nothing wrong with that Christian to say, Lord, I'm not committed. I'm not able to stand up here. If my mother dies, my wife dies, my house burns down, I'd lose it, Lord. I couldn't handle that. If you're looking at something that says, I can't handle something, then, then say, Lord, work with me. And that's a fair concept. And read this text. Don't just read the little Christmas story and think of the little kids playing in the little, you know, play on Christmas and, oh, isn't that cute? And we have to give presents to each other around a tree. Throw that out of your mind. There's a powerful sermon here about Mary who was a scared young girl and God was willing to work with her to bring her to the point to say, I want you to be committed to what's happening because there's a big role in your life. God calls you. God loves you. He has a very special purpose for you in your life and he wants to do something with you where you're going to step out in faith someday and do a wonderful thing for him. But you're never going to get there if you're not committed to him now. And if you're not committed to him now, you need to be convinced. And if you're not convinced, then you need to sit down and say, Lord, show me. And I've prayed that many times. I've been there. I've been scared. I've been there. And I'm saying, Lord, I, you're asking a lot of me. I need some help to do this. And God's come through some quirky, weird way and said, this is what I'm doing. And then I know that I know that I know that I can go forward and God takes us forward into wonderful things. Amen? Amen. A little bit of insight into Mary. Why don't we stand and close in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God that is working and alive and strong and here today in this room. Father, that you are a God, Father, that wants and cares and understands that we are weak and feeble and inept. Father, I pray that we would understand our head. Our head is Jesus and that we would know him in a greater way. Father, if our heart's prayer today is that we're not committed to you and that we need to be convinced, I pray, Father, that you would show us. We need your hand, Father. We don't need trickery of men. We don't need deception and lies of this world, Father. We need the real deal. We need you to be here in our lives, Father, and to change us and to mold us. Father, help us to get through each day. We thank you for your word, Father, that tells us that you do send the Annas, the Simeons, that you do send the shepherds, Father, into our lives. You send those to reconfirm the things that you have so that we can be strong, Father, in the day of trial, that we will be tested and be found pure as gold. Father, do a wonderful work in our church. Do a wonderful work in our life, Father. And help us just to understand Jesus. Father, I thank you and I praise you. We ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.